Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. We're delighted to be with you, and Carol, as you may know, is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and very much involved in senior issues and senior centers and health care questions across our community. That there you like, are. There I am. That was like a 10-minute introduction. It was. I didn't mean to take that much time from our upcoming guest. We'll be talking with Rundy Purdy in just a little while. Lives up in Binghamton, New York, author of The Sea is Wide, memoir of caregiving, provided caregiving for his grandfather. And he will tell that story uh, as soon as Carol and I uh, uh, spend a little bit of time talking about what's hot, what's not uh, in the news. And here is one that every single one of us could take advantage of. And that is, was Winston Churchill right about naps, Carol? That's right. I don't know if a lot of people know about Winston Churchill was famous for taking naps in the afternoon. Um, A lot of actually pretty famous people like Margaret Thatcher used to take a nap. President Johnson would take naps. So um, there was a study that was looking at our naps helpful and in what ways and so they really looked at blood pressure and napping Um, and maybe it's not a surprise but napping actually does help blood pressure so it helps in a a couple smoothing it out it's smoothing it out well apparently it so it lowers your blood pressure um, and so that's waking blood pressure and especially when you are asleep and then it also because your blood pressure is reduced then you're, um, you have less damage or less likely to have damage from a cardiac event because obviously high blood pressure is not good for you. So if you, it, and it shows, this is what I really love is the longer the nap, the better. Oh, really? See, yeah. I had always thought shorter naps were better. Well, you know, I think shorter naps are better if you don't want to interrupt your sleep at night because this, this study has nothing to do with how right. well do you sleep later on. Um, but no, those that took an hour nap, actually had better blood pressure than those that took a 5 to 20 minute nap because wow. usually you hear 5 minute nap or 20 minute nap oh no just i mean go for it the whole hour nap so you know all those people that take snoozes in the afternoon you know we've kind of gotten out of that with our work schedule i don't know if people used to drink and nap during the work day we do neither now we'll go to but, spain for yeah the really siesta. but nap your siesta napping's good for you apparently all the the siesta folks were right well, I can give you a mini-study on how it affects your evening sleep. We called Carter and Kennedy's school today and said, please do not let them nap more than an hour. Please don't let them nap more than an <laughs> please, hour please, because please. they're not going to bed at night then. Wide awake. Wound oh, that's up. It. That's it. And if you're caring for someone with Alzheimer's who you do allow to sleep a lot during the day, that can um, actually reinforce that sundowning effect where people get agitated when the sun goes down, wandering around at night as opposed to sleeping. So, you know, maybe for those of us who are the caregivers, we're the ones who need the naps. We're going to find out from Rundy Purdy in just a little while how he dealt with the need to nap as a caregiver for his grandfather who was struggling with Alzheimer's. Uh, I want to ask you something because uh, I'm the guy who you show me a really powerful 30-second TV commercial, I'm liable to cry. 
Well, and, and that's fantastic because crying is actually good for you. Uh, there was a recent study that was looking at crying, and this was from grandparents.com. And so we have three types of tears. The, the first one are the, you know, the one that clear out the irritants in our eyes, and that's when you know smoke, smoke gets in your eyes. Don't let me sing on radio. Um, <laughs> the other one is keeping your eyes lubricated. That makes your contact lenses feel good. And then the third one is responding to an emotion, right. either joy or sadness. Well, apparently only animals, higher mammals, are able to cry responding to an emotion. Huh. Um, and so that's an evolved uh, form of, of crying uh, for most people. So why is crying good for you? It actually improves your mood. So they did a study. They took people to a sad movie. Yes, I, too, cry at, at the drop of a hat <laughs> at every sad or sad commercial. Um, so they took people to a sad movie. And what they found was that, okay, people, some people cried, some didn't. Of those who cried, within 20 minutes, they were back to their mood, their pre-movie mood, within 20 minutes. But 90 minutes later, they actually felt better than the stoic people who didn't cry at all. Wow. So they got all that negative emotion out of their system, and they actually reported that they felt better. So that's number one. Number two is crying reduces stress. So they know that tears contain some of the same uh, chemicals that are in your brain for stress, uh, and they don't know exactly why, but if you can reduce stress damage, which is kind of like high blood pressure damage, it, it's good, you want your heart and your brain damaged by stress, um, it, which usually involves you know, other chain reactions to stress. So when we tell our children not to cry, we should be letting them cry because they have evolved to have that ability, and it's good for them. So you were talking about children crying. Yay, let them cry, except on airplanes. I don't think that's good for them. Sitting behind you, yes. If they're sitting behind you in particular, that's not good, right. good for you. One of the greatest lines <laughs> in the movies, a league of their own, women's professional baseball, Tom yes, Hanks, yes. coaching a woman's league, and uh, he says to this young woman, there's no crying in baseball. baseball. <laughs> That's Great line, but he should have let her cry. He should have let her cry. They probably would have done better even right. sooner, even sooner. Well, you know how your nose runs when you cry? Yes. You snipple. Uh. Well, apparently your tears also get in down in your nasal passages, huh. loosen up all that mucus, wipe out all of the bacteria, um, and you shed all you know bad things that are in your nasal cavity. So your tears are cleaning out your nose, too. That's a good thing. Too, but, oh, it's kind yeah. of interesting. Interesting is right. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, they do. If you peel onions, you're getting chemicals. So they're going to get rid of that. Um, and the last thing is that they were looking at why men don't cry as often as women. Because their fathers slapped them around when they well, were kids. Yes. One is cultural, and that's probably the most pervasive reason. But the second reason is there may be something about testosterone that oh. inhibits crying. Ooh. So huh. we as women need to encourage you guys as men to go ahead and cry because it's good for you. Maybe I have low T because I, I don't have any trouble crying. <laughs> wow. Get me it to a doctor. Say, I was going to say it doesn't say that. Okay. These are very limited studies that don't look at other things. Well, it is true that sociologically, especially in, in some parts of society, a tremendous pressure on men and boys not to cry. Well, that, and that's in Western society. Yes. Well, it's probably in a lot of Eastern places. But there are places in the world 
um, I'm thinking of Italy, where men don't seem to have any trouble expressing <laughs> any of their emotions. And that's, you know, that may be a little stereotypical. But having been in Italy right. on vacation once upon a time, I can remember these men just walking down the street singing and, you know, all by the arias by themselves. It was and, and then crying, and then oh, crying, crying. Wow. oh, you know, mama, whatever. You just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Just a couple of moments, we'll be talking with Rundy Purdy. He'll be talking about uh, his role as a caregiver for his late grandfather and what that was like. See, the Sea is Wide, a memoir of caregiving is a book that he has written. Born to be a caregiver is the way some described him, and we'll talk with him in just a couple more minutes. We're talking now with uh, Carol Zerniel about uh, some of the issues and topics that she has pulled out of the news, and one that uh, I think a lot of pet owners may find curious. Can pets be depressed? Well, you know, we've talked a lot about how caregivers can be depressed. We just said crying is good for you. And so the question is, can your pet be depressed? Because we know having a pet is good for you. In terms of your depression, what happens if the pet gets depressed? So the answer is yes, they can get depressed. So people get um, depressed because, you know, situational depression, Mm -hmm. things happen. And that can happen to your pet, too. It could be a new baby. It could be a move. Um, It could be a death of a person or another animal in the family. And so if you're noticing change, the same as with people, if you notice a change in your pet's behavior, in their appetite, have they lost interest in their favorite toy um, or just interest in activities that they enjoy? Um, Are they sleeping all the time? You know, those are signs that you really need to get your pet to a vet because the same thing with people. You know, we need to go to the doctor and we need to rule out any physiological reasons why we're exhibiting changes in behavior. Um, now, once you've ruled those out, if they really do say your pet has depression, it's going to be up to you if you're going to go visit a pet behavior therapist type physician. I know a lot of people would think that's a bit extreme. I know other people who would think that's what you would do. I wonder um, if you can. Uh, they have medications, you know, for pets who are depressed. But hmm. I'm sorry, you were saying no, I wonder. No, I, I wonder if they keep 50 minute hours when you take yeah, your cat you, in. They, Probably do. (laughs) But but if you want to treat that depression yourself, so you need to put structured time with your pet so your pet can rely on you. He knows you're going to come home and play with you, you know, at this time of the day. Uh, You want to do something new, get him excited, get him interested. Oh, boy, a new toy, a new place to go. Yay. Um, More attention. How many of us would not respond well to more attention, more love? Sure. All of us respond well to that. So you want to do that with your pet as well. Um, So you want to be more hands-on. And then maybe teach an old dog a new trick. Ooh, I like that. That's right. You know, all of us get stimulated when we learn new things, and that can work as well. I was laughing when you mentioned, uh, are they sleeping more? Uh, You have cats. We have cats. How do you know when they're sleeping more? Because all they do is sleep. Yeah, you would actually have to have a camera on them to see them not sleeping. Because when you're looking at them, they're they're sleeping or eating. And they're nocturnal, so at night you're asleep and they're doing their thing. Yeah, who knows what they're doing. I don't don't want to know. (laughs) I've always wanted to attach a GoPro to one or more of our pets. That would be fun. And just... See what they do at night. Yes, exactly. And you see the wall, the same spot on the wall all (laughs) night long. One of my cats will stay there all night, and even after we get up, still in the same place. Really? Yes. And this is a young cat, not an old cat. Who's practicing to be old. Yeah. One more thing before we are going to jump to uh, Rundy Purdy. Uh, Let's say you have a loved one uh, who has developed dementia, Alzheimer's. Uh, Is there a way to 
prepare the home for them to live there. Well, there is. And I saw an article about preparing your home that was done by Mike Good. Um, and with all due respect to Mr. Good, uh, you know, it is, you know, one of the things we don't ever want to promise, I'll never send you to a nursing home because it may be a promise you can't keep. But if you are really trying to keep someone with Alzheimer's at home, you have to think, number one, about safety because that's going to give them independence and you peace of mind. Um, you have to think about the functionality of your house. If you've got too many drawers and clutter and stuff that's going to trigger bad behavior, um, you have to think about socialization. That's easy to get in daycare, a little harder at home. Um, and then you have to think about other behavioral triggers, too much noise, too much light. I know my mother-in-law really had a problem with um, light, and she liked perfect darkness all day long, which made me depressed. Right. <laughs> and so if we were living together, that would have been a problem. Wow. So, you know, we can talk about that later we maybe will. with Mr. Purdy and see if he had some suggestions. And we will talk with uh, Randy Purdy in just a couple of moments. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Those of us eligible for Medicare know it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations. Well, now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options and a whole lot more. And there's no cost for the service. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are your one-stop go-to resource for everything you need to know about Medicare. Call 877-813-3134. 877-813-3134. I want you to know that as we speak, there are representatives waiting for your phone call if you'd like to talk about Medicare information, if you need information about enrollment, if you need information about where to go and who to talk to. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are standing by to talk with you at 877-813-3134, We are so pleased to have you with us on Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we're delighted to welcome to the line somebody who simply is Unbelievable, the work he has done as a caregiver at a very young age. We welcome Rundy Purdy, author of The Sea is Wide, a memoir of caregiving. Rundy began as a caregiver when his grandfather uh, began spiraling downhill with Alzheimer's, and he was only, he being Rundy, 24 years old at the time. He became a caregiver for the next eight-plus years and then went on to care for his grandmother, who was struggling with heart disease and all kinds of issues. A memoir of caregiving, Rundy Purdy joins us now on Caregiver SOS on air. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here with y'all. Now, you end up being a, a caregiver for your grandfather, which I gather wasn't something that uh, you had set your life goal at. No, it was quite a change in course for my life. And When I was in my teens, I had the dream of being a writer of fiction. So when it Asked me at the age of 20 what I was going to do with my life. Caregiving would have been nowhere on my radar. In fact, at a young age, you wrote your first novel. Right. Age 15? Well, yeah, that one didn't get published. It went to a drawer and it still exists in that drawer somewhere off in the corner. But, yeah, I wrote my first novel at 15. Um, I published my first novel shortly after I started caring for my grandfather. In other words, I was in the finishing stages of writing that novel when I was called away to be a caregiver. That was The Stuttering Bard of York? Yeah, it's correct. 
And as you take a look at what you learned being a caregiver, this show aimed at caregivers, uh, one of the questions that uh, many folks have, and of course there's tremendous fear that not only you but someone you love will develop dementia uh, and Alzheimer's in particular, when did you become aware of the need to provide help for your grandfather? Well, um, I was aware he wasn't his normal self maybe a year, 18 months before I became a caregiver. But when I really knew it was looming ahead of me is when in the spring of 2006, I, I went to care for him in the fall of 2006, but in the spring, my brother, who was living with my grandparents at the time because he was going to college, he came to me privately and said, I don't think Grandma will be able to take care of Grandpa much longer, and I'm thinking I'd better not go to get a job after college. I'd better stay home and help Grandma. And at that point, I told him, no, you go get a job. If Grandma needs help, I'll help her. Because I figured, I'm a writer. I'm staying at home anyhow. I can help Grandma and Grandpa and still write. Well, the still writing thing didn't really work out so well when I was taking care of them. But I knew at, that spring that in sometime in the future, I would be helping Grandma with Grandpa. Didn't expect it in six months. Arlon had thought maybe, my, my brother, Arlon had thought maybe a year, but it ended up coming quite suddenly. So how big of a surprise was this caregiving? I mean, did you have any inkling what you were getting into? I had an inkling. I had read a bit about Alzheimer's, so I knew it was a, I knew it was a fatal disease. I knew incontinence was coming. I knew eventually they stopped eating at the very end. So I, I knew the, the, the really big picture, but I didn't have any good idea at all about what in particular I was going to go through. And it was really, really scary. I didn't know if I could do it. You know, I was determined to do the best I could, but having never done it before, having never cared for anyone before like that, I was pretty intimidated. So what was the most difficult thing that you had to do early on? Early on? Well, in, in the kind of broad sense, early on, the hardest thing was adapting to a new routine. I had been a young male, independent, um, and simply adapting myself to the lives of elderly people was a huge adjustment. As far as actual caregiving, it was learning how to be helpful without being overbearing, because there's a tendency when I came there to want to do everything for Grandpa, but he still wanted to do as much as he could for himself, and um, so it was hard to so maneuver between being helpful and not being too overbearing. So, so your grandfather taught you that lesson in terms of letting him do as much as he can. Which That's is, an important lesson, isn't it, Carol? Well, yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, because especially with the elderly, we do have a tendency to want to care for them as opposed to empowering them. And particularly with Alzheimer's, once, you know, it, it can happen that if someone stops doing something, they're not going to pick that learning back up again later on. It's gone. It's gone. Right. So as you take a look at uh, your growth as a caregiver, uh, you started out uh, much sooner than you thought you would have been uh, re required to do that. Did you move in with your grandparents? Yeah. Actually, what happened is um, Arnold had said that Grandpa would need help eventually in the spring. And then in the fall, in September, we were going to celebrate his birthday. And so he was coming home for a birthday celebration. Didn't expect anything unusual that day. But he came home, and the first thing he did, he came to me and said, Rundy, I found Grandma crying today. She said... I can't take care of Grandpa anymore. I can't do it. Get running now. So I had expected to have a normal week, a normal month, a normal winter. And instead, I found that evening in September, I was packing my bags and heading off to live with Grandma and Grandpa. So my life changed on a dime, and I spent the next many years living with them and caring for them. So how many years was it? 
Well, my grandfather lived for three years with this Alzheimer's, but after he passed, my grandmother was very frail at that point, and she asked me to stay on with her. So I took care of her. She had heart disease and eventually heart failure, and she passed after another five years. So I spent eight years caregiving for both of them. When I walked away, I was like, wow, I just spent a quarter of my life taking care of people. (laughs) Wow, that's a huge commitment for somebody that's young. How how old were you when you first moved in with them? I started when I was 24, so after eight years, I was 32 when I left. Wow quarter of my life. Yeah, see, now that's a, that's, um, facing that kind of a situation would scare the socks off of a fully grown 50-year-old. Yeah. It would be really intimidating at 24. It was definitely intimidating. <laughs> now, what was your daily life like? What, what kinds of uh, activities were you engaged in? Did you carve time out for yourself? Tell us what uh, Rundy Grundy's life was like from day one. Well, it definitely changed as my grandfather became worse. So I'll kind of try to give a a general picture. If my grandfather was doing well, I could get up, get get him dressed, get him fed, get him out to the couch where he could watch TV or do his daily activities. And then I had some time to exercise, to read, and if it was a good day, I had time to do a bit of writing as well. Um, As his situation deteriorated, it was harder to fit all those me things in there. Sometimes I had to take my exercise at night after he was in bed. Sometimes I didn't get to do anything for myself in some days. But generally it was get Grandpa up, get him situated for the day, um, and then do my exercise, do my reading, do my writing, and then had to take care of supper in the evening and Grandpa at the end of the day again. So what did you do financially for eight years? Uh, nothing. I mean, Grandma and Grandpa were paying for food and housing and so forth, so I was making... A very, a very token amount of money from um, some publishing I had done. So I wasn't like I had no money, but I, I, I didn't have huge needs being there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what little uh, recreational spending money I needed, I got from what little publishing I had done at that point. And out of your grandma's cookie jar in the kitchen, right? <laughs> I was the one making all the cookies there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is getting worse. Yeah, this is, this is really depressing. <laughs> Now, as you think about uh, going back uh, to when all this began, 2006, 7, 8, uh, you're just a young kid. Uh, were your folks still alive? Were they capable of helping as well? Um, in measure, yes. Um, I have my, my father was one of six children, so I had a number of aunts and uncles as well, and I have a, a good number of siblings as well. So there's a lot of people, but at a time when I first started caregiving, my father was still employed, so he, I mean, he retired, I think, towards the end. Um, but when I first started caregiving, my father was still working in a regular job, and my mother was taking care of some of my younger siblings. So they weren't really available for regular help, but I had older siblings who were able to pitch in. And so when grocery day came around, I had to get out of the house, get groceries. I'd have a sibling who would come down and stay with Grandma and Grandpa to make sure there was no problems. And on the weekend, someone would come down for like eight hours, so I had most of Saturday off. I could go home and visit my family and vent and unwind and stuff and then come back. So I had some regular um, brief um, help, respite from um, family, but they were a good half hour away, so it wasn't like they could pop in at any old moment and just, you know, pitch in like that. Now, Binghamton yeah. is a very rural area. Were you living on a, on a farm or in a community? Uh, well, I was living out in the country. My grandparents were living basically in town. Vestal is kind of like a suburb of Binghamton, and they lived in Vestal. So it wasn't too far to get to grocery store and doctor's appointments from where they lived. But um, 
family was not nearby. Well, and, and you're in a part of the world that's kind of cold and snowy. So yep. did you, I mean, did you feel isolated? What about your friends, people your own age? Were they like, oh, he's caregiving? Um, yes, I did feel isolated, especially as the disease got worse. Uh, I am a very introverted person, so I would say that for someone else, it probably would have been absolutely crushing. For me, I managed to manage it by getting out of the house. To take, like, I try to get three bike rides in a week, so I feel like I wasn't totally trapped. And sometimes I felt like it was the only escape was to go out for those bike rides. Um, I had my family, which I visited with on the weekends. I, I, I have never really had a lot of friends in my life, um, but nonetheless, I recall many times sitting out in the front court on the front steps in the spring and summer and watching people walk by and thinking, boy, nobody knows what's going on with me. I'm here all alone, and nobody knows what my life is like. It wasn't totally true, but you, you have those feelings you got to wrestle with. So did you ever connect with other caregivers, even if they were not your same age? Did you go to any support groups? No, and I would say I don't advise other people to do it like I did it. I really went alone, and I think it made it a lot harder because I had to learn everything for myself. All right. Um, nowadays, you can go on Facebook, and there's an Alzheimer's support group on Facebook with 20,000 members in it. Um, but I really walked alone, and my story is not a story of Wendy did everything right. Sometimes Wendy did things wrong, and you should do it differently. I would say don't try to be like me and walk alone as a caregiver. You can get so much from other caregivers from what they've walked through. Stick with us just a minute. We're going to come right back at you. We... Uh Going to do a little news at our end. You drop into the uh, Maxwell Smart Cone of Silence for just a minute here, and we'll pick you right up. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, talking with Rundy Purdy, author of The Sea is Wide, a memoir of caregiving. And, you know, Carol, it's refreshing to hear someone say, you know, don't do it the way I did don't it. Don't do it like <laughs> me. I, yeah. Yeah, story of our lives. I did everything wrong, so uh, <laughs> you can do it right. I like that. That's good advice. You're listening, and that's what we're here for in Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. We are so pleased you've joined us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. We're talking with Rundy Purdy, an author who spent eight years of his life as a caregiver for his grandfather and then his grandmother, dealing with the grandfather's Alzheimer's, the mother's heart disease, and heart failure. Uh, he took a whole chunk out of his life in order to care for them and then wrote a book about it, The Sea is Wide, a memoir of caregiving. Randy Purdy is with us, and Carol, you want to jump back in? Well, I was just, I wanted to talk a little bit about the writing. So if we were to pick up the book, um, The Sea is Wide, what would we find in there? A very personal story. When I was sitting down to write, I had to ask myself, what do I want to share? Do I want to write a very technical how-to book? And I think that could have a very good place. But I said, no, first I want to share my story. And I wanted other people to be able to process their own journey through Alzheimer's by seeing someone else's story and saying, yes, that resonates with me. So it really is the three years of the walk through Alzheimer's from beginning to end, the highs, the lows, the funny parts, the sad parts, the things I learned, the things I struggled with. And it really draws out a really emotional reactions from other people. The response that I got from the book is that it made them laugh and made them cry. And it, and even talking about the book, in some of my talks, one person told me is that my talk enabled them to start grieving for the first time after a year of losing their parent. Well, somebody's compared your book to Tuesdays with Maury. 
Yes, it's very, very flattering. I think it's, well, I'm not the one to judge, but this sort of memoir is similar in the sense of it being a more personal um, storytelling. Now, I was struck that uh, after all of this in uh, 2012, you went and got uh, licensed as a licensed practical nurse. Yeah, after fact. <laughs> I mean, you, you, they should have just given you the degree uh, after what you did for eight years. Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't so hard for me as for other students. I did graduate valedictorian of the class. So no no surprise. <laughs> as you think back, and for those who are uh, listening who, who may be caregivers and others who may not, uh, you had to do things uh, for your grandfather, uh, toileting, uh, dressing, showering, uh, very personal that, uh, you know, grandkids don't do for the grandparents. Yeah. How did you so deal how with I that? It? Yeah, how did you handle it? it? Uh, very, very delicately. Huh. <laughs> um, I, I tell you, that was probably the, one of the biggest things I dreaded in advance. My grandfather was exceptionally, exceedingly modest. And I could just imagine that becoming World War III. Um, but thankfully, he wasn't incontinent when I was first there, so we got to know each other a bit before I got to uh, that stage. And what I would tell the people is that you start learning that there's worse things than poop and pee and a naked person, and that you can kind of get accustomed to it after you've kind of got over the first couple hurdles. But really, really important is to learn how to handle a situation. Like with cleaning my grandfather, I learned I had to distract him. At first, I just gave him advice on how to clean himself, and then I just helped by washing his back. But when we got to the more delicate issues, I'd say, okay, Grandpa, here's a washcloth. You wash your face. And then I would clean the areas he didn't want me to clean very quickly. By the time he realized what was going on, he suddenly discovered his face. I was all done. Likewise, with the toileting, I sometimes had to let him make a mistake that I didn't want him to make because otherwise it would be an argument, a fight. But as he became more aware of his difficulties, he became more accepting of help. So I would advise other caregivers, recognize it's a process. Don't try to rush things. And be, be aware there will be mistakes. It's a learning process. Don't be hard on yourself. And realize when things have to change. At the very end, I was having such a hard time getting my grandfather in the shower. He was starting to fight me. He had never done that before. And I finally realized, you know what? He's scared of the shower. He doesn't understand what it is anymore. It feels like he's being assaulted by something when I put him there under the water. And I realized, oh, it's time to switch over to giving him a sponge bath. So... Be aware of the personality of the person you're caring for. Don't get too caught up on the physical grossness of it, and, and all of us can make it through. You were wise beyond your years. It takes some folks a long time to hit on what you hit on. And, oh, that and, is some, and some people never you know, are able to develop that sensitivity, that flexibility that you're describing. It is amazing. Well, thank you. I'm glad I can hopefully share it with other people. Now, did he have a, a primary care physician who you worked with or who was helpful to you? Um, yes and no. Uh, again, it's a situation where I probably didn't avail myself of the help as much as I should have. He was, generally speaking, very healthy. I had been taking him to his physician, and after one visit, she told me, he is really healthy, she said. And if he wasn't losing his mind, he could live to be a very, very old man. Which scared you to death. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was kind of intimidating, but um, at that point, I stopped taking him for regular visits because he got him agitated and there was nothing she could do for him. There's no, he would not take pills. He never took pills his entire life. And so his blood pressure was fine and everything else was fine. And so unless we came up with a problem, I didn't really go back to a doctor. But 
when I did have problems, I did go, and she was very helpful. Like, eventually, as his eating declined very severely, he started having issues with um, constipation. And after a first crisis with fecal impaction, uh, I needed to get some laxative. And so she prescribed it, and she was very frank with me. She says she gave me um, um, the glycol a laxative, and she said, you got to mix this with a drink, and it's not really precise. It depends upon how well he's eating, how much you need. And I'm sorry, but sometimes it's messy. And boy, was she right. Oh, clean, like cleaned stuff. him out, but it was messy. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes you got it just right. Sometimes you didn't get <laughs> quite, a much, quite enough, and sometimes you got too much. Yeah. And you had to learn really well how to adjust that dosage for how well he's eating in the current time. And she also was very frank. She says, we both know where this disease ends up. She said, you tell me when you are ready for hospice, and I will get it for you. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't really willing to admit where we were in the process, so I didn't get hospice until like three days before he passed. I should have gotten that months earlier, but I was not willing to admit where we were at in the disease. So I didn't really avail myself of all the stuff that the doctor was willing to help me with, but she was very helpful as much as she could be. You know, it's not unusual to call in hospice. A a lot of people um, are hesitant because hospice is admitting... A, we're near the end. Right. Uh, B, you know, well, it's mostly A. We're near right. the end. Um, so that's really not unusual. Uh, and just want to point that out to caregivers who may be listening. You know, hospice is a wonderful resource. Um, they can come in and help provide a lot of comfort and a lot of physical care for right. someone um, who's in their right. final stages of Alzheimer's. I know my mother-in-law went on hospice probably for about two months. Uh, and it was a huge help for my father-in-law. It is. I always recommend caregivers, you know, I speak to them now, to make sure you get hospice as soon as you can. And actually, my second grandfather got Alzheimer's as well, and my grandmother remained, my other grandmother remained his primary caregiver until the end. And I advocated to her. I said, you need to get hospice when he gets to this point. And unfortunately, in her case, the doctor was very reluctant, so I had to kind of step up and be an advocate for her and for my other grandfather and say, he needs he needs hospice now. He's no longer eating. He's no longer getting out of his bed. And I got help in for her a lot sooner than I got it for myself. Well, good for you. Yes, yeah, so very you, glad I could do that. Yeah, you mastered the all of these caregiver caregiver elements and you know helping other people. Well, you mentioned in talking about your book that there were highs and there were funny stories. So share with us, you know, some of the the positive uh, experiences and maybe if uh, something funny because people with Alzheimer's can be funny. They can be very funny. I have a lot of stories put throughout the book. Um, but me and my grandfather both had a very quirky sense of humor. And I would say those things could really leaven a day a lot. Um, then there's also times we had really tender moments together. And some of the most cherished memories I have is when I would read him bedtime stories. He loved to have bedtime stories. And so I would sit there and read him books, classics or you know whatever, and he would really enjoy it. Now, as for funny events, uh, maybe I can share, I'll share a really short one, because it's a good story, it's a good reminder that that they're a lot more than you think they are. So as the disease progressed, Grandpa would sit on the couch and call for people, real or imagined. He'd shout various names, and sometimes he'd just sit there and just shout, hey, hey. So one day he was doing that, he was getting kind of late in the disease, so I came out and I sat next to him to keep him company. And he was just staring across the living room, shouting at the chair over there, hey, he kept getting louder. I kept saying, what do you want? What do you want? And finally, I got tired of saying, what do you want? So when he shouted the very loudest time, hey, I said, shout a little louder, Grandpa. The Chinamen haven't heard you yet. And he stopped, and he turned to me, and he said, 
was that a snide comment? <laughs> and then we both started laughing. <laughs> I, thought, I thought he wasn't paying attention to me at all, so I decided, you know, start making little jokes. And he was, you know, he heard me, he was paying attention. That's funny. <laughs> and another time he's, he's calling for, for, for Gene, which was his older brother. And so I started yelling back, hey, George, just because to be funny, his name isn't George. And then he started repeating me. So then I said, give me all your money. And he got ready to repeat me. And he stopped and turned to me. He said, you want all my money, huh? Well, hold out your hand, and I'll give you a little teeny bit of it. And then he lost his ability to speak. But he was, he was <laughs> trying to joke with me as well. So we had a very enjoyable um, interaction, even when he was losing his verbal ability, because he could still understand my jokes even long after he lost his ability to be really verbally communicative. What did you learn about yourself going through all this? Eight years is a long time, as you said, a third of your life. Yeah. So what did what did Rundy learn about Rundy? Whew. Um, this is a kind of a bit of a cliche, but I, I, I've had to sum it up. I'd say I, I, I learned that I'm not as strong as I think I am, and I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. <laughs> um, You're somewhere in uh, the middle. Well, it's just this, you, you, you find you can't do things you thought you could do, and you find out you can do things you thought you couldn't do. Um, but I guess I'd say probably the biggest thing I, I learned is I learned what self-sacrificial love really means, what it means to give up of yourself, to, to really go the extra mile for someone that you love. And for me, learning that, experiencing that, growing in that is something that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. And I think will impact every relationship I have going on down the road. Are you working at all now as a licensed practical nurse? No. When I finished with my grandmother, I had to make a choice. Go get a professional institutional job or pursue writing. And I realized that I could go and hand out pills and, and, and take people's blood pressure and do all the things that a licensed practical nurse does. Or I could help people by sharing my story. And I realized I felt like I was using more of my special gifts by going out and talking and writing and sharing and helping people through the journey that I took. So I was like, well, if that doesn't work, I'll go become a, a normal nurse. But I want to be a helper in this way if I can. So that's what I'm pursuing right now. I go on talks, I go on lectures, I write things online and try to help other people through this really hard journey. So if you are, you've talked about a couple of things that you've learned along the way if you were going to talk to someone um, who's new to caregiving, uh, who's, you know, listening to your story um, and is feeling pretty daunted by this road that lays ahead of them, you know, what would you, what would you tell them? Number one, don't walk alone. Do not walk alone. Nobody is an island, and you can't make this journey by yourself. You need your support group that will be there to hold you up. Number two... Figure out what is really important and be prepared to let go of everything else because caregiving will make you let go of all the unimportant things. And if you try to hang on to those little things that aren't important, it will break you because you can't carry all that stuff through this journey. Uh, I could share 10 more things, but those are like two key things I think that caregiver needs to understand is priorities and community, I guess. Were there days where you just ran into the backyard and screamed into the wind, I can't do this anymore? Um, the equivalent, when it got really bad at the end and my grandfather was no longer eating, I would go back into my room and lay down in my bed and stare at the ceiling and think, I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But you did it. Uh, but I did it. You st and you it, stayed it, on it five more years with your grandmother. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, it was it was emotionally bad when he stopped eating because I felt like a failure when sure. I couldn't get him to eat. I mean, I knew that was where it ended, but emotionally, when you're invested in that kind of thing, it felt bad. Wow. Is there a website folks can go to to learn more about you and your books? Yes, there is. The website is Caregiving Reality, at caregivingreality.com. And on that website, you can find out more about my book, more about where I'm talking, and you actually can contact me to get me to talk in your location. And I'm also adding additional essays and writing to help other caregivers. Like recently, I posted an essay about what it's like to deal with emotions that are weighing you down. I have other essays about going through the dying process. So there's a lot of material on there, even beyond my wow. book, to help caregivers. Unfortunately, we've got to stop you right here. You're great to talk to, and I salute you for what you went through. That's right. Thank We're going to give you a medal and invite you to come back again. Oh, thank you so much. We'd be glad to come back again sometime. You take care. Bye-bye. Rundy Purdy, author of The Sea is Wide, a memoir of caregiving. Powerful story. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The answer, up next, take 10. Those of us eligible for Medicare know it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations. Well, now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options and a whole lot more. And there's no cost for the service. Remember, open enrollment begins October 15th through December 7th. Call 877-813-3134. 877-813-3134. For more information about open enrollment and for your appointment at one of seven Medicare Information Centers, uh, there are folks standing by right this second. Call them at 877-813-3134. Thank you so much for sticking with us for Take 10. Take 10 follows each of our regularly scheduled Caregiver SOS on-air programs. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, nationally recognized expert in caregiving as well as addictions. And Dr. Jamie, good to have you on board. Carol's got a great topic for you. Yes, we're going to talk about our brothers and sisters, and we're even going to tell them we're talking about them. So siblings and caregiving. Sometimes that can go well, and sometimes it doesn't go so well. So when we're, we've got brothers and sisters and we're trying to take care of someone, what are some of the, you know, what happens? What are some of the family dynamics that are going to go into this caregiving situation when you have multiple people? Well, Carol, it's a great topic. It really is. And, of course, brothers and sisters I'd like to think is universal and it's everybody out there, but no doubt the caregivers will relate that, that it's a very special, sensitive issue when it comes to family caregiving. You know, family caregiving is stressful enough, but when brothers and sisters get together around a loved one, it triggers so many kind of what I call, and most therapists call, family of origin issues, which means early on in our lifetime, certain relationship patterns were set, they were reinforced, uh, it happened whether, you know, our family was detached or, or enmeshed. But we kind of develop these roles with our brothers and sisters, subordinate roles, becoming heroes, becoming mascots, scapegoats. Everybody has watched the codependency thing. So when caregiving hits, these roles kind of kick in, and it's particularly stressful um, in addition to, to family caregiving. The issues that really come to pass, I believe, are, are not just the illness and how to take care of mom and dad, but then you find these issues of money and inheritance, um, 
distance and guilt uh, and, and the stress that comes, not just from the primary caregiver, but the brothers and sisters who are not there trying to work through that loved one. You know, I think that you really, you hit on so many good points there because it's it's interesting but the minute we get into the caregiving, it's it's kind of like we're back in the in the jungle and it's the animal pack and we sense that the leader of the family is weak, the leader of the tribe is weak. Um, and it like triggers in somebody else to be the alpha at that point, even though we're not consciously doing that. Is isn't that kind of what you're saying? I am. And you know, not just the alpha, because you know, we can all relate to a brother or sister if you have multiple uh, siblings. Who is the who is basically the alpha? But the old adage, which we've talked about often in this show, is that the more out of control a person is, the more controlling they become. So when it comes to brothers and sisters who are taking care of a loved one, you know, who may both be either the primary caregiver or be miles and miles away as a long distance caregiver, a lot of these people are not just alpha, but become controlling as can be because they have a sense of feeling out of control. How does that work? If you're out of control, how do you become more controlling, or why, I guess? Well, you know, Ron, it's a great question, and it's an illusion. It's a, what we call clinical projection. What, what is, if we're out of control in our minds, we seek, if you will, the, the illusion, the mirage of being in control. And so how does one get in control of their environment when their mind is out of control? They start directing and conducting and controlling and telling people where to go and putting people into boxes and, and, and filing them and judging them. And all these things happen because actually we're out of control. In our mind when we're out of control, it means, Ron, that we can't really let go. Instead, we have to assert our control. To Carol's point, our dominance, and if you're, if you're an alpha person, too, it's, it's, it's control on steroids. So why is it that once, you know, we get family members and we're taking care of mom and dad, all of a sudden money starts playing a role in terms of it might be, do we, should we be spending money on the medications? Those are really expensive. Uh, should we be spending money on the help in the home? It's really expensive. You know, oftentimes we find that, you know, there may be one member of the family that money seems to be the predominant concern. No doubt. I mean, this is America, and uh, I'm sure this is the same in other uh, societies, but we're a pretty capitalistic society. Money is the, the currency. Um, also, money is the control thing or the feeling of out of control, if you will. There's family members who may have done quite well and are okay and can let go because they've got a nest egg. And there's family members who feel they've got the raw deal and never, don't have anything, really, as many, many boomers are, are like that. And somehow money becomes a big-time extension of our fears, our anxieties, our stress, our relationship with our loved one. It's something we can put our finger on, and it's also, you know, the sad part is it, it becomes a pretty selfish process here. Well, so what do we do when we're, our big concern is we want to be, we want to have the right health in the home, we want to have the right meds, we want to do right by mom and dad physically, health-wise, and our sibling, all we're hearing is it's the money, it's the money. How do we, how do we get through that? How do, is there a way for us to get on the same conversation? Let's talk about health, not money, or, or let's compromise on the money so we can get to a little bit of the health I want? I really believe there is. I mean, obviously, when we point out the, the problems here, um, if you're not part of the, of the solution, you're part of the problem here. I think when it comes to caregiving and siblings, I think it's vital for everybody to get together 
and bring in a geriatric care manager, bring in a third party, bring in a financial advisor in along with that third party. Look for outside resources. I mean, to Ron's question about asserting control, it's pretty natural for us to get scared and get fearful and get anxious when a loved one has a chronic or terminal illness. And then we also look at it through our own lens and our own myopic way that how it affects our own family or the grandkids. The most important thing I think we could possibly do as family members, as siblings, if you will, is to bring in a very educated, very empowered third party with good clinical sense around caregivers and senior care. Now, as part of the problem in some of these situations, the elephant in the room, and that is we're spending my inheritance. The more we spend, the less mom has to leave to us. Well, it certainly is the elephant in the living room for many people, Ron. I, I, I will say in my clinical history, um, it does come out in, in that very safe, confidential, therapeutic room. The inheritance, for some odd reason, will kick in in people's minds. And I think it does influence, you know, subconsciously. And to some people who have a little more, how do I say, sociopathy or less of a conscience, I think it kicks in pretty overtly. But yes, no doubt, uh, inheritance really, really affects the, the brothers and sisters, I think, to, for the most part, uh, in, in what I should call un, more unhealthy environments, if you will, more likely than not. So let's go to the other end of the spectrum. I'm thinking of a family, three kids, and nobody wants to take the lead. Everybody's hoping someone else is going to step up. In the meantime, mom and dad are spiraling out of control, and the kids are like letting it happen. Right. And you know, that's exactly why, uh, Carol, I think that there should be ground rules, if you will, informed consent, things that happen. As soon as we find out we're becoming a caregiver or a family, as soon as they find out is taking care of a loved one. We should really huddle up and realize that things that like money and inheritance and distance and stress and anxiety and who's taking care of mom and dad are all real issues. And whether it's a teleconference, because it's obviously financially challenging to get into one room, or it's everybody getting around a table, bring in a third party, prioritize, and, and make each thing a goal with outside consultation. Well, and, and I would add to your third party that, you know, there's all those important documents that you want to have in place anytime uh, you're dealing with older people, you know, your durable powers of attorney for health care and finance. Um, and if you're in a family that isn't cohesive, isn't on the same page in terms of what we want done and we want to happen, then it's it's doubly important to perhaps have a third party, you know, be, play that role with the power of attorney so that you don't just add fuel to the fire by picking one kid over the other kid. But, you know, that advanced directives and power of attorney you're mentioning, that's real hot-button triggers in with siblings. Um, I mean, family caregiving is stressful already. Many of us have never done that important work in our own lives. But it really starts defining, quote-unquote, the pecking order of who mom, who dad, who brother, who sister liked the most, relied on the most. And again, a real need then to bring in a third party to assess each group, each person's strengths so that they don't take it personally. Out of three people who don't get along, pick a third, fourth person who's going to make those decisions. <laughs> That's a great question. You know how people do find that out, 
though, is that if you do have one or two that's in a support group, Ron, uh, this is playing itself out across the entire country. Uh, Carol's a, a, you know, a pioneer there also in gerontology. She realizes this is going on. Support groups really, really have the answers for so many, even if two people won't go in and one will. Gotta stop and, you. and I would throw it out there. I would we're, just throw it out to the group and say, where do we go? We're flat out of time. Dr. Jamie, thank you. Carol Zerniel, thank you. I'm Ron Aaron. This is Caregiver SOS on Air. Take 10. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer.